The Dead Sea area is one of the most fascinating places in all of Israel. It is the site of King Herod's incredible fortress of Masada, and is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It is a barren and arid place, and yet it is the site of the most famous oasis mentioned in the Bible. For a visit to this area, which is the lowest point on planet Earth, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Well, here we are about to begin the sixth day of our pilgrimage. We're still in Jerusalem, and today we're going to head to the Dead Sea, and people are going to have a lot of fun. This is kind of a fun day compared to the other days where we do a lot of walking and do some serious contemplating about uh, uh, Jesus and the Word. Today we go out to the Dead Sea, and uh, people get a chance to get their toes in the water. And some of them just go plumb silly and put black mud all over them. Black mud, you know, has sulfur in it. Right. And so it... it, uh, can help with arthritis and a lot of things. But we're going to go first to a remarkable site called Masada. When King Herod was in this land, he had these uh, fortresses all over the land where he could flee to. The man was absolutely paranoid, and some people like him were justified, justifiably paranoid because he killed so many people he knew they were after him. Some of them are still around today. <laughs> so anyway, he uh, uh, had this great fortress at Masada. It's just unbelievable. Up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere with swimming pools and all the luxuries of life. And we'll be going out there to see that. After that, we're going to head back up toward Jerusalem. And we'll stop at uh, Ein Gedi, a spring out in the middle of the, of the desert where David often hid. And we'll talk a little bit there about uh, an incident that occurred out in that area. And from there we'll go to Qumran where we'll have lunch. And Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Yes. And we're going to be uh, letting our guide today, Ilan Barkai, uh, to uh, uh, give you some explanations uh, from the Jewish viewpoint of Masada and Qumran. And then we're going to go take that swim. And everybody's going to jump in the Dead Sea and act plumb silly and float. You know, you can float on the Dead Sea and read a newspaper at the same time. That's right. So it's going to be quite a day. When we're at Masada, we're going to be focusing on one main thing, and that is the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the horrible things that occurred at that time and the zealots who fled out there and, and were finally uh, killed. Uh, they killed themselves, in fact. And, and I want to read to you a scripture I'm going to share with the people this morning. And it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, who survived that, was walking through the streets of Jerusalem. He was lamenting just lamenting the the destruction of his city, weeping over it. And suddenly he makes this statement right in the middle of it, one of the greatest statements of hope in the Bible. This I recall to mind, and therefore I still have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. Even in the midst of all the destruction, he could hope in the Lord. Any comments, Gary? Well, Qumran, of course, is special to anybody that owns a Bible because it verified and, and uh, legitimized the Bible that we have today. We'll get into that probably later. But the overwhelming uh, sense that I get down there is at Masada. Uh, there's a question that arose down there that day that still reverberates today. 
why can't the Jews have 70 miles wide and 280 miles long while the rest of the world has all the other real estate? But the Romans didn't want them to have it. The world doesn't want them to have it today. And that uh, site down there is a testimonial that the Jewish people cannot have one little bitty country all of their own. And so when we go down there to see it, I will think of that today. Yes, for 2,000 years the Jewish people were told, you cannot live in our land. And they were expelled from nation after nation. Then suddenly they get their land, and then the world says, no, you can't live in your own land. Doesn't want them happen. The Israeli army soldiers today take what's called the Masada Oath. And that oath is, Masada will never fall again. And Israel means it. Herod's fortress of Masada is located on the top of a barren mesa located near the south end of the Dead Sea. Riding a cable car to the top of the mountain is quite a thrilling experience. Some find it frightening, but it sure beats the old-fashioned method of walking up the snake path, something that the strong of heart and legs still do. Remember, Masada was um, under a siege between 71 to 73. When the Romans first came over here, they tried to run up to the fortress with their swords. And they got to the wall of Masada on the west side of the fortress. And over there, the zealots rolled down big stones that prevent from the Roman soldiers to get close to the wall. The Romans tried to conquer this mountain several times, and they fell again and again. Then, Flavius Silva, that was the general of the Roman army, he decided to build here a ramp on the other side of the mountain. He built a ramp on the western side of Masada. How we build the ramp? Herod had Jewish slaves that he brought from the city of Jerusalem after they conquered Jerusalem. And the Jewish slaves built the ramp on the west side of the fortress. Why choose Jewish slaves? He knew that the zealots were very religious people. He knew that the rebels won't kill their own brothers. So, after almost two years of construction, the Roman finished the ramp on the west side of Masai. And then they put on top of the ramp, the battering ramp, and they started to knock down the wall. When the zealots saw that the Romans built the battering ram, on top of the ramp, they built a wooden wall and it filled it up with sand to be like a shock absorber. But the Romans were not stupid. When the Romans saw that the zealots built a wooden wall, they started to shoot the fortress with the flame arrows. And the historian Josephus Plavius 
He described how the wind changed direction. First, they burned, they burned up the wooden wall. Then the um, battering ram was on fire. And then both were on fire. <coughs> so when the zealots saw that the wooden wall was on fire, they realized that that was the end of Masao. They realized that short time after the Romans are going to conquer this point. The Romans had a very important rule, they never fought at night. And that's why they went back to their camp and made the preparation for the attack in the morning after. And that night, Elazar ben Yair, that was the leader of the zealots here in Masada, he gathered his people in the synagogue that we're going to see later on. In one of the oldest synagogues in Judea, Elazar, in his famous speech, he persuaded the zealots to die as a free people. Okay, he die, to die and not to be slaves of the Romans. So each one of the men, each one of the rebels here at Masada, killed his own wife and children. Then they choose ten men. He found a little piece of um, the lottery shrine. That they choose ten men to kill all the others. And then among those ten, they, ch they choose one man to kill the other nine. He was the only one who killed himself. <clears throat> so in the morning after, when the Roman army entered the fortress from the area of the ramp, here in Masada, it was sad. There was no voice because the people of Masada were dead. Well, here we are on the top of the incredible fortress of Masada that King Herod built out here on top of one of these tall mountains. And we're overlooking here the uh, Dead Sea. At this part, the Dead Sea has almost completely evaporated. It's evaporating at the rate of three feet a year. It has, still has a long way to go because it's very, very deep. But the southern end was shallow, and the southern end has almost completely evaporated. The reason for that is because very little water ever reaches the Dead Sea anymore. When the rains come in the winter and the Sea of Galilee fills up and it starts flowing down the Jordan, Israel and Jordan are pulling irrigation water out of both sides of the river until finally when it gets to the Dead Sea, there's just not any water left in it unless it's flood conditions. So the Dead Sea has been evaporating. Now, as Elon said a few moments ago, this is where the zealots retreated to and the uh, Roman army surrounded this place and kept it under siege for over two years before they finally were able to conquer it. It's amazing to think of Roman soldiers living out here in this wilderness with all of their armor on and all, but that's what they did. 
and the zealots would look down at them and laugh at them and throw things at them. And the zealots had a swimming pool up here and they would uh, go swimming in the swimming pool and make fun of the Romans and it just enraged the Romans and make them more determined to conquer them. One of the things that Elon told about that uh, really touched me was he said that when this whole place was rediscovered in the 19th century, before they actually did all the excavations, one of the things they discovered up here, I think in the synagogue itself, was a part of the scriptures that were opened to Ezekiel 37. And that really touched me. That uh, vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones was given to Ezekiel, and he's just taken out in this big valley with dry bones, and the Lord said, prophesy, preach to him. <laughs> I've been in a few congregations and I felt like I was preaching to the, <laughs> to the Valley of the Dry Bones. You been there, brother? I've been there. Okay. But anyway, he started preaching and these dry bones started moving, brother, and they started coming together and stood up and he had no idea what was going on. And so the Lord told him, turn it over to you, Gary, go for it. <laughs> I'm reading Ezekiel 37, verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And I will pour out my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you into your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. One of the first things that grabs me here is the Bible says here that he would bring them into your own land, not somebody else's land into your own land. One of the greatest political contentions today is that the is people of Israel have come back and they're occupying somebody else's land. But God says they're in their own land. And they were in their own land the day the Romans were here. But the Romans didn't like them being here. They wanted to conquer them. The Romans wanted to conquer everything. The Romans are a, a reminder of a scripture to me. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It reminds me of something else. God promised anybody picked on his kids in Joel 3 that he would retaliate. And so both of those scriptures uh, remind us. And you know, Gary, uh, when you said they're going to bring them back to their own land, in that regard, uh, verse uh, 11, I believe it is, yes, uh, says that, uh, uh, no, in verse 12 says, Oh, my people, I will open up your graves and cause you to come in up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Not the land of Canaan, not the land of Palestine, Amen. not the land of Zion. That's right. And what did they decide to call this land when they established it? Israel. <laughs> Prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes. Hallelujah, brother. Our next stop was at the famous oasis of Angedi, located in a canyon along the rim of the Dead Sea. The water you see is coming from the oasis, which is located about a mile further up the canyon. All right, I want to uh, begin by, first of all, just saying that we're here at the uh, oversight of the oasis of Angedi, which is way back up in this canyon here, about a mile. And this is uh, one of the few oases out here at the Dead Sea. It's been there forever. 
And uh, it is a place where David used to come and hide from King Saul. David had a lot of hideouts in the desert, and this was one of them. And when you're in a place like this, all you can think of is water. Because if you don't have water, you will not exist very long out here at all. I remember a number of years ago, there was a very, very famous Episcopal bishop who came over here. And he came down into the Judean wilderness and decided to go out and walk around, and he got lost. And they found his body a couple of weeks later, and he had simply just died from heat exhaustion. It can happen very quickly. You have to have water. So when you're in this area, you think about water all the time. And from now on, when you read these Psalms, I hope you will remember this place. Let's take, for example, Psalm 63. Here's David. And the, and the superscription to the psalm says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. That's where we are. And look what he says. O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That's his passion for God. His passion for God is the same as a man in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water who is passionately desiring and yearning for water. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Another example is to be found in Psalm 42. And here we have a psalm of the sons of Korah who were trained by David. And in Psalm 42, we have this comment. As a deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, O God. I thirst for the living God. All through the scriptures you find these allusions to thirst because in this land water is everything. I want to share with you a story from the life of David that really has impacted my life over the years. The story is told twice in the scriptures. It's told once in 2 Samuel and it's told again in the Chronicles. And it's a story about David hiding out in the wilderness when Saul was trying to kill him. He was hiding at one of his hideouts. It was not on Gedi at that time. It was closer to Bethlehem, but he was at this hideout. And he was there with his mighty warriors. And uh, this was actually after he had become king, but he was early in his kingship. And the Philistines had come and just flat run him out of Bethlehem. You know, his original headquarters was in Bethlehem before he moved it to Jerusalem. And they had run him out. So he was a king with very little power at that time. And he's hiding out there in the wilderness. And they're sitting around a campfire. And as they're sitting around the campfire at night, he suddenly makes an offhand comment, just an offhand comment. He says, you know what I would like right now more than anything else in the world? A taste of the water of my hometown of Bethlehem. And he stretched and yawned and crawled back up in a cave and went to sleep. And those men who loved him with their lives said, if that's what David wants, that's what David is going to get. And so that night, three of those men spent the entire night traveling back to Bethlehem, sneaking through the Philistine lines at the, at the risk of their lives, getting a bucket of water out of the well at Bethlehem, sneaking back through the Philistine lines, and walking all the way back. You ever carry five gallons of gasoline? Tell me, you, you carry, it's heavy, it's heavy. Water can be very heavy. And they carried it all the way back. And I, I just in my mind's eye, I can see that they put that bucket of water right in front of his cave. And then the three of them sat down and grinned like Cheshire cats waiting for him to come out. And I can imagine him coming out, you know, and stretching and looking out over the Dead Sea and 
then looking down and seeing that bucket of water and seeing those three guys sitting there grinning. And he says, you know, what is this? They said, David, you said last night what you wanted most in all the world was a bucket of the water of Bethlehem. There it is. He said, you mean you went to Bethlehem and you snuck through the Philistine lines at the risk of your lives two times to get this bucket? They said, that's right, David, we love you. We wanted to honor you. And just like that, he did something that must have just astounded them without even thinking. He just reached out and picked up the bucket of water and said, this water is too valuable for me to drink. There's only one thing that can be done with it. It must be given to God as a sacrifice. And he poured the water out on the ground. That's the kind of man David was. He had a passion for God like nobody had a passion for God. He said in the scripture, he's a man after God's own heart. He did things like that all the time, just spontaneously. When he became king of all of Israel, the first thing he said was, I will not sleep in a bed until the Ark of the Covenant has a proper resting place. I will sleep on the ground as the king of Israel until the ark has a proper resting place. And he went to Kiriath-Jerim. He got the ark and he danced before it all the way to Jerusalem. Danced with his underwear. Took off his outer robes. And as he came to Jerusalem dancing before the ark, his wife was astonished and embarrassed. And she reprimanded him. And he said, honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. And she was struck barren by God because she had the audacity to criticize his worship. Yes, he was a sinner. He committed murder. He lied. He was a human being like all of us. But he had this overwhelming passion for God. And when he sinned, he always came back to God in repentance and cried out that God would forgive him. And so he is presented as a model for us as a man after God's own heart. Our next stop was at a place called Qumran, also located on the shore of the Dead Sea. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in caves like this one. 1947, a Bedouin boy that was here with his flock of goats and sheep came to the caves of Qumran and he took a stone that he threw into the cave. The cave, the, the stone broke one of the jars in the cave. He wanted to see what made this noise. He went in. He then, he found the jars. He opened the jars, and in the jars were the scrolls. Of course, the Bedouin boy couldn't read the scrolls. The scrolls were in ancient Hebrew. In Aramaic, he couldn't read the scrolls. So he took it to his father. So his father will make him a pair of sandals from the scrolls. His father thought that maybe the scrolls worth more than a pair of sandals. And he took it to Bethlehem. And that's how the archaeologists found out about the scrolls that were here. And then they came back and started to look in other caves around Qumran. And for several years, they checked all the caves around Qumran, and they found them in more than 11 caves. Now, the scrolls that were found over here 
considered as one of the most important archaeological discoveries. Because here they found the oldest copy of the Bible that we have today. The oldest copy of the Old Testament that we have today. Before that, the oldest copy was 1,000 years old. And here we have scrolls that are 2,000 years old. Think how excited were the scholars all over the world to read the Old Testament as it was in the first century before the Jews went to the exile. And this was the best present that the state of Israel could get in 1947. Because remember, in 15 of May 1948, the state of Israel was born. And that was the birth, the best present that we could get. We ended our day by taking a dip in the Dead Sea. They keep having to move the swimming area farther and farther out as the Dead Sea evaporates. One of the things the swimmers delight in doing is covering themselves with mud from the bottom of the sea. The mud is full of sulfur, so it has medicinal qualities. It is really not possible to swim in the sea because it's too buoyant. All you can do is float. Well, folks, that's our program for this week. I hope it's been a blessing to you. This has been the eighth program in a series we have been presenting about the Holy Land. Previous programs have featured Tel Aviv, the Roman city of Caesarea Maritime, the Crusader city of Akko, the Sea of Galilee, the town of Nazareth, the fortress of Megiddo, the archaeological site of Beit Shan, and the old city of Jerusalem. If you have missed any of these programs, you can find them on our website at lamblion.com. Next week, the Lord willing, we will focus on the Mount Herzl Cemetery and the Garden Tomb, both of which are located in Jerusalem. I think you will be fascinated by the sights. Until next week, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. You can get a copy of three fantastic programs which are video recorded in Israel. They come together on one DVD and an album called Profiles in Righteousness. You'll be spiritually enriched and inspired by the stories of the Roman soldier Cornelius, the prophet Elijah, and King David of Israel. As the stories are told about the relationships with God, you'll see the actual places where the events took place. To place your order for this terrific DVD, for a gift of $15 or more plus shipping, just call the number you see on the screen and ask for a copy of Profiles in Righteousness or order online at lamblion.com. Lamb and Lion Ministries proudly presents the Introduction to the Holy Land Tour. Join host Dr. David Reagan as he spends 12 wonderful days and 10 nights leading this Holy Land pilgrimage. Dr. Reagan has led more than 40 groups to Israel since the ministry began in 1980, and he focuses upon sites that are related to the life of Jesus and His Second Coming. The tour originates in Dallas or Newark and visits such places as Tel Aviv on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, Chorazin, where Jesus frequently ministered in the synagogue, Capernaum, the town that served as the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. The Jordan River, 
Nazareth, the boyhood home of Jesus. The Dead Sea. The incredible excavations at Beit Shan. And it ends up in Jerusalem for several days to tour the traditional sites and mountains that will help you and your family have a better understanding of God's holy word. For an itinerary, registration, more details, photos, and more, please visit our website at lamblion.com or call the number you see on the screen from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.